Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Hey, we're off, we're off. It's two, it's two, it's two. Right. I suppose it's midday, really, yeah, but like it's two. It's two o'clock. Two o'clock rock. Uh, there are 23 others, but this is the only one that counts. Um, according to Bill Haley, if if he even does have kind of like any weight uh, in 2021. Yeah, I wonder, uh, then, I wonder how, many, how many of the kids know uh, who Bill Haley is. Um, Bill Haley was in the top 10 charts when we were... Yeah, it was. It's weird. The Asian weird. came back again, didn't? It? Yeah, like, but like, it was really weird because, like, in the eighties, well, like, in the eighties, in the eighties, we're number fifty-one in Malta. Hello, all our Maltese fans. In the eighties, there was an obsession with the fifties. Yeah, because it was a gen- it was a generational thing. So in the nineteen eighties, um, all of a sudden, everyone that was a teenager in the fifties decided. That's the big thing. So you had loads of films. Um, like even stuff like the Blues Brothers was kind of like a throwback to music from the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Benny uh, King, I think that was the number one, wasn't it? With Stand By Me. Benny the film King, brought Jackie out Wilson. That again. Yeah. Jackie Wilson, Repetit. Um, Heard it through the grapevine. Then, uh, you have all of those comedians that were all kind of, uh, you know, like, um, what did I watch? Uh, I saw bits of Beverly Hills Cop 3 the other day. And it's kind of like you've got John Landis putting in all of that kind of like Motown music into it, um, which was like, I think that was like early 90s, was 1993, same year as Jurassic Park, Beverly Hills Cop 3. It was like early 90s. Um, but you had all of these comedians that were sort of like obsessed with. And then you had Back to the Future, which was obviously, it's um, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale that were obsessed with their childhood in the 50s, so they wrote a film about it. And Peggy Sue Got Married, which was about going back to the 50s. Um, it was kind of like, yeah, all of the filmmakers, what was cool when all the filmmakers were children uh, became cool in the 80s because I guess they didn't relate to what was happening around them. But even stuff like in Teen Wolf, when he gets on top of the uh, on top oh, yeah. of the van, they play Beach Boys stuff, and you kind of like go, yeah. like, "There's nothing like all of the cool moments from those films are sort of very fearless and shout." So, yeah, which isn't oh, we're well aware we've moved to the sixties now, but uh, so don't write in. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, so there was sort of like so in the eighties, the yeah. There was Fats Domino, fucking hell. It was like like the number one the number one hits mixed in with Brost and Madonna. And then he uh, had Chubby Checker and the Fat Boys. A bit of Chubby Checker and the Fat Boys doing the twist. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the Fat Boys But the Fat Boys had like a um uh like a format, a formula, didn't they? Because Chubby Checker did the Beach Boys as well. The Fat Boys yes. versus the Beach Boys. So they did Wipeout. Um, and, uh, yeah, which was an instrumental, uh, track. Yes. But then the, the, the Fat Boys wrote some raps to it. And, uh, and then also, um, the Fat Boys did Freddy Krueger as well, didn't they? Um, and Freddy Krueger, um, when, when he was his most prolific, was, what, uh, as, 
was uh, <laughs> Peter Fogenitor in yeah. the uh, uh, was it the early early eighties or late seventies? Probably late seventies. Very nostalgic time, though. Isn't it? <laughs> We look back on his. But he would have probably grown up in the fifties. Yeah, he probably would. Um, yeah. uh, I can't remember the storyline from Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's set in nineteen eighty four. But um, he's already dead by then, so yeah. who knows? Who knows when he was born? If anybody knows uh, what year Freddy Krueger was born, write in. Let us know, please. Write us in with that one. I think it was the fifties. Uh, More so, importantly, what's your name? My name's Nick Helm, um, <laughs> and this is Nathaniel, Met- Nathaniel Metcalf. Hello. And you're, and you're listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Um, it's like a uh, cold open, are... that. That was good. It was like um, an episode of Law and Order. I think that people just want to hit the fucking ground running. Yeah? yeah. Tell your friends, by the way, guys. Um, I think we can sprinkle it in throughout. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, maybe leave it to the end. Like, that's a twist. You find out who we are and what the well, show like is. An, uh, like an Anne Robinson send-off. I'll tell you, friends. <laughs> One thing I noticed the other day, I'll tell you what I've been a fan of this week. Oh, yeah. before, you get, before you get to it, before you chew my ear off, I'll tell you what I've been a fan of this week, Nathaniel. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the last few weeks in lockdown, I have been a fan of... Challenge TV. Oh yeah. Well, so you get the Sony uh, Sony channel on what I've got as cable. I've got like the VIP Sky package. Um, I didn't ask for it; they demanded I had it. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what channels you, you might have. You get it for free. Is that why they? I get, I get for, I'm pretty sure they've snuck in that I now pay for it, but I didn't, I never asked for it. Uh, they, and I've had so much difficulty and problems with Sky, I don't think I would have. I've tried to paid. access the VIP channel, but all I can see is like a red velvet rope and I can't see behind it. Well, um, it's not a channel, Nathaniel, it's a whole package. Okay. And believe me, uh, the reason for that. Red velvet rope. There's stuff in the VIP section of Sky TV that you just wouldn't understand. Wow. I have access to Challenge TV. Wow. Yeah. Holy I can watch as many I can watch as many old episodes of The Chase. Uh Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Just before this came on, um yeah, I'm not I'm not afraid to admit it. Just before I came on air, I was watching Wheel of Fortune with Nicky Campbell and Carol. Is that Smiley. why you're on just before we started? Uh, yeah, because I wanted to know. <laughs> wanted to know who won. Um, so I've been. Uh, so I watch a lot of Millionaire. Uh, Millionaire's over on Sony Channel, but also Channel TV owns some series, and uh, Sony Channel owns some of the other series. So every day, like Sony Channel. I mean, TV is fucked at the moment. Like, so I have co- I have Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. And do you know what Comedy Central's big thing is that they're doing at the moment? I don't know. Cheers. They show the A-Team and Baywatch. I wouldn't really put them as comedy shows. They're not comedy shows. I think that their thinking is that they're so bad that they're hilarious, but right. they're not. Um so you get an hour of Baywatch and then an hour of the A-Team 
uh, and then you have uh, 17 hours of Friends, and then you have the same hour of Baywatch and the same hour of the A-Team to round off the day. So it is possible. I've caught myself more than one time in of late. Uh, I've sat in front of Comedy Central. I've not. Um, but I have, like, um, a lot of episodes of Baywatch and the A-Team uh, recorded. And a lot of them are du- a lot of them are duplicates, so I've got to kind of diff my way through that. Um, you do a yes. series link. Does it record the same ones twice? Then uh, I think I did two series links. I think I recorded it at night and I recorded it in the day. And it doesn't like you go, oh, this is the episode that you've already got. I'll sort it out for you. They'll just duplicate it, which I think you know there will be technology. Maybe twenty years down the line, where TV will recognise the content of what you taping you know like a visual uh shazam and it'll say that could, oh, good, need... that could be a good one of charlie brooker's black mirror couldn't it where someone finds out they can they don't have the same thing twice or nathaniel metcalf's the uh, uh the dawn patrol yeah i'll get on that so like the twilight, one. like the dawn um, area, like the twilight zone. I'm trying to think of the. Yeah. Like, I, I think you know. Don't say yourself shot. That's all I'm saying. I think <laughs> that you've got yourself. Don't just give all your best ideas to Charlie Brooker. Yeah. yeah. I I have so I've been watching loads of uh, dance TV and stuff, and, and actually I find it quite enjoy it. I also watched the entirety of Your Honor, the new Brian Cranston series. Oh yeah, yeah. What's that like? A part part three of uh, I'm a Dad, his his dad trilogy, starting with Malcolm in the Middle, rounded off with uh, Breaking Bad, and then finished with uh, Your Honor. Um, yeah, the new Brian Cranston TV series Your Honor. Watched all of that. How was it? Um, do you know what? There's some bits of it, like. Like it's, it, I remember in about, by about episode three. I think episode three. I don't. I remember thinking episode three is not very good. Um, I remember sort of like by about episode three, I was thinking, "Oh, this is it. They've done it. He's he's finally found like a worthy follow-up to Breaking Bad. He could do this. It's an interesting character. It's great, but um, the, it's 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 a weird it's a weird series." I think with the, with the undoing with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, I think what I really enjoyed about that was that it was shameless trash, but I re- but it was enjoyable. It was a thriller. It's sort of like uh, maybe it was like I don't think, I don't know how much I've thought about the undoing since I've seen it. It was probably disposable sort of trashy goodness, but I really enjoyed it. It was well acted. I thought Hugh Grant was brilliant. Nicole Kidman was great. You know. It was it was it was a lot of fun. I think with this, um, it's not Breaking Bad, so you have to get that in your head. Um, and you're watching it, and you're kind of like, oh wow, this is all this is it. And then and then every so often something kind of like, uh, not you know, shit happens, not for the characters, just in terms of like 
Why is that happening? That doesn't make sense. That feels like that's just been shoehorned in for some reason. And then it'll go back to being brilliant. And then as the series goes on, I remember texting uh, James Kill, my friend James Kill, and and yours, um, the, uh, the guy that everyone knows. Um, he runs my um, uh, third favourite comedy <laughs> club in London. Third favourite. My favourite comedy club in South South London. Um, James Gill, ABC. Uh, so I, he, he recommended it and I started watching it. He always recommends me TV shows and I have to say, mate, I'm halfway through season four of Millionaire. I've, uh, <laughs> I've, once I've caught up on this, I've got a lot of other, you know, I've got The Chase, uh, Catchphrase, you know, Bullseye. I'm doing them all. Um, so yeah, so you'll be watching it, and uh, and you'll you'll be sort of like tricked into thinking, oh, this is this is like premium quality TV, and then every so often you go, oh no, it's it's trash again, and then it'll be like, oh. so I think Brian Cranston is so good in it that he sort of sells it as a league above what it really is, but some of the dialogue is terrible, and some of the relationships in it are just sort of like, why would that? Why are you doing it like that? And I think it's. Um, um, yeah, so it's, I, I would say as a series, it's really great. Like, I'll, tell you, I'll give you an example of something that's fucking mental in this series. It gets like episode seven, right? Uh, and it's this, it's this film about, it's a TV show about uh, there's a judge and there's a gangster and the judge's son uh, kills the gangster's son in a hit and run mm-hmm. by accident and then it's about them trying to cover that up and it all spiraling, spiraling out of control. That's episode one. And then, the, and by episode five, I texted James and I said, how are they going to keep this up? I feel like it's over. It's 10 episodes. I feel like, how, where can they go from here? And James was like, oh, trust me, it gets a lot more tense. And it does, but it does start to fall apart. And then in episode seven, they, uh, I felt like I'd missed an episode. Episode seven, it might be seven or eight, but I thought I thought it was it might be eight because then it's eight, nine, ten. But I thought it was like three away from the end, so I thought it was seven. They start talking about social distancing, and Corona, and um, and then there's a couple of shots of people wearing masks in court, and then. There's a couple of references to Brian Cranston saying, well, um, uh, because of social distancing, I'll just talk to him in my uh, in my office. And then there's some scenes where one of the characters has uh, taken up vaping. So she stood outside and then he sort of like stood about two metres away from her down some stairs talking to her. And, you, and now you're watching it because they brought up Corona. You start watching it going, well, this scene was shot. So they must have filmed 75% of the series without Corona. And then Corona hit. And my question really is, why not just ignore Corona? Because as soon as you mention it, now you're watching scenes of people outside. And you're like going, well, they're only filming outside because of, uh, you know, social distancing rules and filming rules. But because they've mentioned it... Um, you're, you're hyper aware of it, but had they not mentioned it, you wouldn't have thought twice about this character yeah. that suddenly started vaping, right? Because the vaping is an excuse to get her outside. Why didn't they just use Corona? Now they've introduced Corona, 
as kind of like an excuse for them to it's weird because it's one of the first shows that i've ever seen where it's like normal 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 and then all of a sudden um and the way that they reference coronavirus entering into the storyline is so sort of like you know throwaway and offhand you either admire it because they're just assuming that everybody knows what corona is because we've all lived with it for two years so it's either just kind of like oh by the way corona's hit which me leads me to think we've imagined a world without corona up till now just just carry on as you were and we won't really think about it Maybe some scenes to look underpopulated, but do you know what I mean? It's like um, uh, the, the, um, that Gillian White movie that we watched last week. Yeah. That was filmed during Corona, but they didn't go on and on about the fact they didn't even mention Corona in it. Do you know what I mean? There was a mask here and there, and I think that maybe maybe that's the way to do it. Maybe it was one of the first shows to be finished off during Corona. They said, well, while they we're making it, well, we'll have to mention it. I think it's a but difficult it's just... time because no one really knows how long it's going to go on for. I think especially in America where it's all still, it feels like they're all still amongst it a bit. Um, but I would say, but what I would say about this, this series is that it's about um, these two families that are sort of like trying to sort of like hide from each other and get at each other and all this other stuff. So you're fine. But as soon as Corona hit, you know, Everything ends. It's just sort of like, right, we'll put a pin in that. We're all self-isolating. We're not allowed... Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, we'll put a pin in all of our vendettas and all of our kind of, like, revenge plots and all of that. Because Corona is now the main storyline in everyone's life. It's not like a courtroom scene where it goes, oh, because of a bit of Corona, we're going to have to do some social distancing. Anyway, back to the plot. So it's kind of like, if you're not going to kind of like, it would be, it's, to me, it's like, you know, the movie Snake Eyes, mm-hmm. where it's a heist that is basically taking place at a casino. Is it a boxing ring or a casino? There's Both. a casino with a box. It's, it's like one of those huge kind of casinos in Las Vegas. And it, or is it Atlantic City, isn't it? It's Atlantic City. I think it's Atlantic City, and it's going to be getting hit by a... Um, uh, Storm. What is it? So, do you know what? I've not seen it. But right, so it's not, but it's going to be hit by this huge kind of like fuck off storm, and they're going to use that to cover the heist, right? Mm-hmm. That's all like hurricane heist, which I have seen. It's kind of like there's a massive hurricane going to hit, so we're going to use that to cover the heist, right? You've got this film that's kind of like referencing Corona, and, it's, and, and Corona hits like this huge storm, and it cut through the nation. All of our nations. Do you know what I mean? It was like this huge sort of like global... You can't explain it in an offhand comment in in episode seven or eight of your ten-episode series and then just kind of like go, anyway, there you go, is the thing. And you'll, you'll be seeing... He may as well have said, you might be seeing a few masks dotted around in some of, uh, in some of the wide shots. But just don't think about it. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just kind of like, it, 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 if they're giving us enough intelligence to work out that they're filming under corona conditions, then they should be able to give us enough intelligence to just see a mask in the background and just get on with our lives. Do you know what I mean? A bit like that thing just... where they say, don't, whatever you do, don't think about bananas. And you go, well, I'm thinking about bananas now. I wasn't. It was, I wasn't even thinking about it. But now you said it, all I can think about is bananas. What's that? It's that thing. It's where you, if you didn't don't mention it at all, 
you wouldn't think about it. But as soon as you bring it in and say, don't, whatever you do, don't think about it, it's suddenly all you can think of. I've never heard of such a thing. I've never heard of such a thing. (laughs) But that is one of the jarring, that's one of the giant things in the show. I think, yes, it's exactly like that, Nathaniel. But it's one of the things in the show where it's not jarring. I'm obviously, I'm not, I'm not an imbecile. I'm not a child. Not all children are imbeciles. It's a different point. I'm just saying that it's one of these things in the show where you kind of like start doubting the process from the show. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Kind of like, Brian Cranston's good. Oh, he's real good. Hang on a minute. That other character, doesn't he seem a little bit superfluous? Oh, I wonder, no, but Brian Cranston's good. And then doubts start creeping your head. And by the end, it's kind of like you're holding wet paper together and trying to say it's a, a, a book. Because I think it, it also might age badly, right? Like assuming, let's assuming, fingers crossed, everything goes more or less back to normal by the summer, autumn time. If you're then watching this show, like lots of people are catching up on these shows for years. They watch in a few years. It might all seem a bit odd and a bit unusual then. It was just so, I think it's because it was probably being finished while it, while it was starting up maybe, or maybe while it was like going on and on. I just, and it was kind of like either make your whole plot now about coronavirus or you know, oh, like like the last four episodes are, oh, we're all in lockdown because of corona and now we're vulnerable because we can't get any police out in time and, you know, all of the hospitals and the ambulances are sort of like taken up with corona. You know, make it that, make it like outbreak, make it, make it like something or don't mention it at all and yeah. we can all be in our homes and just imagine it was, it's like, but they, they just do the thing. They kind of like go, oh yeah, by the way, there's some, some corona going around. But seven hours into your 10 hour film. Mm. And you know, by the way, so, and then it has no impact on anything, and it's sort of it, it's weird. Or just one. Also, there's three female parts, and um, it's basically they all do the same thing, and you kind of like just make them into one character, and then everything's much better. Uh, I I have a lot to say about it, but if you've not seen it, and <laughs> audiences haven't seen it, our listeners haven't seen it then I recommend it, absolutely. It was a really fun, diverting 10 hours of telly. But also, at the same time, it's sort of like... Enjoying on challenge, though, Nick, more importantly. Falls apart. Say again, what am I enjoying on challenge? challenge? What am I enjoying on challenge? Just told you. The chase. Wheel of Fortune. The The chase, yeah, but the thing about the chase is I've never seen a whole episode of the chase till very recently. Oh, yeah. One of the things that surprises me is how long it's been going. I like the chase. I've got a lot of time for it. Um, Well, that's a different different conversation. But I've always walked in at, at, at random moments on the chase and I've never been able to piece together what that show is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and now I've watched it from beginning to end. You go, oh, it's a lot more. All right, so here's what I want to know about the chase. Right? Mm-hmm. Are the chasers? Yeah. One of the flaws, I would say, right? Because that's all I've got. I can now just sit at home and pick things apart all day, right? 
one of the flaws with the chase, right, is that you've got four people that are all challenging whatever chaser it is that day. Who's oh. your favourite chaser? Who's your favourite chaser? I like Paul Sinner, the Sinner Man, or I like the Vixen, and I don't really like the others. Who's the Vixen? Is that Jenny Ryan? Jenny Ryan. I've not seen. I've not seen any Jenny Ryan episodes. I've met Jenny Ryan. She's lovely. Um, and I did her podcast with Lucy Porter, um, and uh, I, I was reminded the other day that Jenny Ryan is Jason, and that's how I know her. Um, <laughs> But because I've seen how many, however many episodes, and I saw one episode where Paul Stinner wasn't in it, and it was just the other three. Um, so, oh, and Anne Hegarty as well. I did Crystal Maze with Anne Hegarty, so I know her as well. But um, yeah, it was okay. So what I would say, so you have to, you have to. My favourite is Paul Sinner. not Me just because he's not just because he's a comedian. He, but I think that helps. I think he's quite funny. He's he's a human being, which a lot of the others aren't, I think. And I quite like he relates to people and will do something. I think I just quite like kindness the older I get. So he'll he's often very go, kind. Oh, that's really good. That was really good, he'll say to them. That's that's what, exactly. It's really kind. Uh, whereas, you know, um, some of the others just go as far as they can to be. You just think this is needless. The whole concept is weird because they've obviously got like whoever it was. So they haven't got like with Paul Sinner, they've hit gold because obviously he knows loads and he's like this quiz master, but he's a stand up comedian so he can deal with like humans, have conversations with people. But uh, the other, the, the other lot seem to be people that are really good at quizzes, you know, but they're. Uh, Social but, skills are lacking. Social, social skills are lacking. So they've been given this character, which is basically you're a Bond villain, right? Mm. And we'll give you this cool nickname, and you come out. But their social, but their social skills are so sort of like um, they've, they've got these scripted bits of exchanges and these threats and stuff, and they just come across as like pretty out of. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's kind of like, so Paul Sinner, who can do everything, who can like chat to him, show a bit of kindness, but he'll also go in. What do, do, do the chasers get a salary? I presume so, yeah. I think so. Yeah, right? So they get paid, they get paid every day, no matter what, right? Yeah, whether they win or lose, I think they get paid. Whether they win or lose. So what's in it for them? Um, yeah, I sometimes wonder that because sometimes I think I'll just let him have ten grand. <laughs> exactly. Certainly, don't be a cunt all your life. Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of like what the, the, what, uh, so I was watching an episode of The Chase, um, and uh, uh, and they have, were going to make thirty thirty grand between two of them, I think. And there was like fifteen questions, and it was right, and and fifteen was like really slow. You know, obviously, like the chasing on gets like twenty-two or twenty-four, mm-hmm. and, but they, like they were juggling with fifteen questions on this one, and it got right to the last second and the last, um, uh, what should I call it? You know, the last question, the last second, and they like went, "Oh, John!" 
and they got it in, and then the two contestants didn't win 30 grand. And you go, what's <laughs> in it for you? What's in it for you? You've literally just... So either the chase, right, doesn't have any money, right? They've got no money to give away his prizes, right? Bradley gets paid. So whatever chaser is in the studio that day gets paid, but they're not all in the studio that day, right? I would say the contestants rarely win any money on the chase. Rarely win a penny. <laughs> Because there's no money, right? The show's got no money. It's all been spent on Bradley, right? And then the ch- and then the chasers will do a block of five every day, and there's however many chasers, but they get paid per day. So it's just like, who's in today? Paul's in today. Anne's in today. Jenny's in today. Is what I would assume, right? The way I picture it, because the fucking chaser, right, has to walk on and off in between each game, which is ridiculous, right? I find that bit ridiculous. As soon as you found out who it is. The other thing is, I always think, if they're all in, like, if unless they record all the Paul Sinner episodes on one day, I also think... Yeah, but you kind of think that, yeah, you have to have this sort of, um, this whole rigmarole of them coming in and out all the time. When the first, sure, when you don't know who it is, bring them out and you can go, oh, look who it is. But after that, it's that thing where they have to keep coming and going. I think... Leave them out there. What you can see is you can see that it's kind of like they've gone, well, in some uh, early episodes, I assume, they do this big uh, crane shot where it goes over thousands of people in the audience that are all going mental for it. And then you have later episodes where it's kind of like where you never see the audience at all. And so it's kind of like, okay, right. So I think that the initial game, right, is that you've got all four of the chasers or five of the chasers, depending on what season you're on, or three of the chasers. But you've got them all, right? And they're all sat at their their kind of like ramp that they're on. Mm -hmm. And they're all in silhouette. And it's like, which one will it be for this round, right? Yes, that's what I think. And they all have a special skill, right? So one of them's better at sport and and um, uh, popular history, right? And one of them's good at science, right? And what you, like, they're good at everything, but they have like specialist skills, right? And it's kind of like, okay, so who are you looking for? Uh, who are you hoping that you get this time? And then it'll be like, well, I hope I get Anne Haggerty. I hope I don't get the Beast, right? And then it's like, oh, you got the beast. It's like, oh, well. But it's like each person has to go. It's like end of level boss. Each person has to face their personal demon yes. in order to get through. And then they don't get through. I also think that the, the fucking chaser shouldn't get paid, right? Yeah. For the story, obviously, give them a salary in real life. But for the story, it should be like they're competing for the money. For the money. It should be, it should be like there's 100 grand in the pot. And um, and each contestant comes in and takes a bit of that money away. And the, every time that they get money, it takes money away from the chaser. And the chaser is actually trying to defend something so that there's some drama in it. Because all that happens at the end of an episode of The Chase is, if, no, if, if the contestants don't win, no one wins. No one wins anything. There's no stakes. It's just the I end of the show. Think the other problem with exactly what you're saying is the first contestant gets to say, well, who do you want it to be? And he gets to say, oh, I want it to be um, the beast or whatever. But no one else gets that choice. So you don't yeah. get that at all. No one else gets asked that because they don't have any say in it. So who do you want? And it's like, it don't matter, you got him. 
Exactly. The other thing that fucking... Just to finish this one thought on the chase and then we'll play some Alice Cooper, is that when you get to, like, the end, there's, like, two people, right, and they've made uh, they've made 12 grand, right? And then there's one person and they, and they have a choice between making... Uh, £1,000 minus two grand or 35 grand, right? If I was one of the chasers left, yeah, mm-hmm. with 12 grand, and this person is going to offer one grand or 35 grand, I would say, you have to go for 35 grand. Because they say, what should I go for? And they all go, well, it's better to have more people at the end than, you know. No, if you're bringing one grand to the table, right, and between... Th- Three of us, we get six grand each if you lose, yeah? Yeah. If you just fuck off now, we get six grand each. If you go ahead and you get 13 grand, now we get like four and a bit grand each. Yeah. Yeah? Sometimes they even do it, though, where they give them a minus number. Yeah, and then I saw that the other day, this fucking... She came along, she took minus, uh, minus two grand... So they went from 35 grand to 33 grand, which meant that they were going to get 11 grand each. But if she hadn't got involved, they would have been able to split whatever it was. <laughs> I can't do the math. Um, but do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like it gets to a certain point where you go, no, you're better off not even coming through because we can split this in half or we can split this three ways. But if we split it three ways, we're all getting less. It yeah. doesn't matter how, how much of an... So if you're last, you have to take the fucking 35 grand that he's offering or she's offering. You have to take it, otherwise you're not welcome here anymore. This woman, she, this woman did minus two grand, got through, and she had the nerve to walk back and give everyone like a pat on the back. The people that were left looked absolutely gutted. They were like, not only have you not contributed anything, you've taken away money. We're making less money with you in twice. A, you've taken money off of the pot, and B, you're going to take a third of all the money now. It was fucking, mind you, she did answer a lot of fucking questions. Let's play this Cooper. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back. We're back. We're back. We're back. Um, so, what have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? <laughs> I'll tell you what I watched this week. A film I'd never seen from 1995. Johnny Mnemonic. Oh yeah, that? right. Okay. Is it shit? It's shit, right? Um. Sort of. I reckon it, it is shit, but I reckon it's probably more entertaining now than it was um, when it came out. Well, I saw that you posted a picture, didn't you? And it said, the internet, 2021. Yeah. Um, I, I, That's I like the opening shot of the film. This is before, this is after Speed. This is before The Matrix. It's uh, a, a rare cinematic outing for Dolph Lundgren. Yes. Um, it was in 1995. Uh, who's good? Who, who, is, he, is he good in it? He's different in it. He wears a big beard and he's like religious kind of Yeah, he's a bit like, preacher. I mean, I suppose he's a bit like um, Thor or someone. He, yeah, he's, he's, sort of, he's a religious preacher, but he's also like an enforcer. A fish out of water. Yeah. Um, an enforcer. Um, so I saw it at the time, and it, and but it was like to the point where it's a little bit like Mercury Rising in a way, where it was like uh, Bruce Willis made Mercury Rising, which was a film about him and a kid that oh, yeah. has uh, that has like telepathic powers. Um, but I think it was just nineties version of what autism is, oh. and then. Um, 
and then you had Johnny Mnemonic, which was a Keanu Reeves sci-fi cyberpunk thriller about the internet and computers being in charge. And then they both went out and they said, yeah, and now we're going to make another film about uh, the 90s cyberpunk thriller starring Keanu Reeves, and it's 200 million. We're making three of them all at once. And they're like, what? What are you doing? What are you doing? Have you not seen Johnny Mnemonic? And the same thing happened with Bruce Willis, which is, I'm going to make another film with a kid and he can see things. And they were like, no, no, don't do it. And then it came out and it was like, oh, it's... Oh, it's all right, guys. It's The Matrix and The Sixth Sense, which were the same year, weren't they? 99. Yes, they were. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so right, that's that's just me saying, yeah, I have seen it, but in a long, long time ago. So talk us through, how's it aged and what's it like? Well, the things that are really good about it is that it's actually quite, there actually aren't that many kind of sort of cyberpunk thriller things. And, and things like the production design, it looks great. That's what really struck me straight away. It looks great, except when there is anything to do with the internet or sort of cyberspace or anything where it looks like the lawnmower man. <laughs> so it's got these right. sort of vector graphics and things cut in at a time when you kind of go, I mean, not even computer games look like this. You know, this, this looks particularly kind of of a period and it's very cyberpunk in that they've obviously, it's like they've read new scientists and they know a little bit about things, but not enough. So he is a, a mnemonic courier who is uh, carrying with him um, in his brain. He gets little things in his brain that he carries around. And this time he's been given um, the cure to this virus. Um, um, But he can only carry 80 gigabyte of uh, (laughs) data at one time. But the data he's been given, he's been given 300 gigabytes, which normally he'd be able to put on like a flash drive or something. But he has to carry it inside his brain, unless. But he's got too much now because he's only he can only store. Um, the life of my phone has too much. It just tells me to like delete something. But he's got someone's put too much data into his brain, so he keeps having like headaches and things. And uh, so he's got to carry. 300 gigabytes of data inside his little brain and uh, go into, uh, um, is it Los Angeles? It's, it starts off in Beijing, but it's also got a really good 90s cast of quite cool 90s people. So it's like Ice-T, Henry Rollins, Takeshi Kitano, Udo Kia, Dolph Lundgren. So every, everyone keeps popping up and you go, oh, I like them. That It's got like a genuinely quite charming... 90s cast of people that that you like seeing and it's keanu reeves so it's there's stuff about it that you kind of go i sort of like it seems like you're watching it and going this really is silly and yet i was i was quite enjoying it because i kept chuckling at little bits i tell you um Udo Kier popped up in ace venture pet detective the other day and i was like fucking hell like, that's probably, every time I see Udo Kier in anything, I always go, oh, it's Udo Kier. Like, you know, oh, that's a young Udo Kier in Suspiria. And that's an old Udo Kier in, um, uh, was it Dragged Across Concrete? No, it's the other one. Um, Brawl in Cell Block 99. Mm. That's Udo Kier. Where do you know Udo Kier from? Probably... Ace Ventura Pet Detective. That's where he's <laughs> sort of, like, indelled in my head. Um... What's weird it's is, weird, well, just having said that, what seeing Udo Kier pop up in Johnny Mnemonic, I found myself going, 
oh, you know, Kia, I think of him as being a bit kind of a bit of a quality actor. And actually having you list off what films he's been in makes you go, that's not really true. <laughs> he's not. He's not. He's a, he's a, but he's like a, he's a genre actor, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can get him. I like, I like Udo Kier, uh, but you can get him in. He, you can get him to do anything. <laughs> um, he'd be a good chaser. Um, Could we get Udo Kier on? Get Udo, but if they, if they were like struggling to get their, do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like we want to get our, um, uh, our money. We want our money back. You, you know, and it's really sinister. We want our money back. All of the contestants had like, you know, um, duct tapes to a chair <laughs> with a spotlight. And they're like, we want our money back. And then they have to really sort of, they're competing for their lives as much as anything. The chase. You know, um, it's called The Chase. There's not, there's not, you know, there should be some sort of there should be some sort of physical element to it, you know. Starts with them getting chased, you know. Like they're surrounded by barbed wire fences and they're in like a scrapyard, and they're terrified. Um, so <laughs> I put Udo Kier in it, but um, Johnny Mnemonic was like, it was sort of like Lawnmower Man uh, and Strange Days, um, one of those films that was kind of like. Um, this is set in the in the near future, so this this has got a shelf life, guys. So enjoy it while you can. Like the um, uh, the Christmas nineteen ninety nine movie End of Days that was all about the millennium. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fucking hell, guys! You got two weeks to see this bad boy. <laughs> that was fucking bad. Hell. That was bad at the time. It was like, it was like, oh, like December the 11th, and it was kind of like, oh, God, this, go, this film goes off midnight, uh, midnight New Year's Day. It was, yeah, midnight New Year's Eve. It was like, God, the fucking shelf life on that film. Uh, and then it's like, kind of like, even if it was good, you'd sort of like start watching it again, and you go, what's the point? We know it doesn't happen. Do you know what I mean? It's like all the suspension is kind of like, it's not good enough to kind of, Absorb you into the story. Um, uh, yeah, okay, Joey Mnemonic. Who, who was that? Oh, it was like one of those films that had like the tagline. I think Total Recall had it, which was like, they stole his mind and now they want it back. And now he wants it back. And it was kind of like, and the, the joke was, oh, Schwarzenegger, he hasn't got a brain. And the same thing was kind of like um, Keanu Reeves, isn't it? Yeah. He's got too much information in his head, and if it were like, then not fucking lightly. Yeah. And uh, also, it's probably yeah. more insulting now because it's like going, um, he's got 300 gig in his brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, so, it's not terribly it's advanced, really. Not very advanced. So, uh, what else have you seen? John Demonic, yeah. I mean, like, the thing is, I remember it on VHS, I remember it being boring and shit and i've never kind of like given it another go really but worth it something i watched that i was a bit disappointed in which is a bit of a classic uh was once upon a time in america and i don't think i've seen it in about 20 years <laughs> it was it, you know what it's not it's certainly not a bad film by any means it's an incredibly well-made film and it has some great bits in it 
And I saw the long version of it. I think there's an even longer version. The version I saw was oh. a three-hour, 40-minute version. It's, it's, a long old, it's a long old stretch. Um, I've, never, I've never seen it, right? I've never seen What's Point on America. And it was actually, coincidentally, this week that I found out that the, the release... I, I watched a YouTube video called How to Ruin a Classic. Okay. And it was basically about the theatrical cut of Once Upon a Time in America, which has always been um, this... I don't know. I've seen bits of it. I just always feel like... And I'm really into gangster movies, you know, for the sake of gangster movies. Um, I really like Goodfellas. I really love The Godfather, one and two. Never seen the third one. And once upon, and I love Sergio Leone, but I'm obviously more into cowboys than gangsters. And um, and I think Once Upon a Time in America, I mean, I love Once Upon a Time in the West. What I think Once Upon a Time in the West in America was meant to be like Sergio Leone kind of like I think I think what it what it was was that he t- he sort of dissected the American Western with his westerns. It was just like, this is what you Americans like. You like Westerns. You like good guys and bad guys. And I'm going to show you Westerns where you don't know who the good guys and the bad guys are. And it's going to be very bloody and, and no one's noble and they're all undercutting each other and it's, you know, a cutthroat, um, uh, you know, um, cutthroat environment that they're all living in, right? And then it's kind of like he went, I'm going to do the same thing with the gangster film. The gangster's film is an American film tradition. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it apart. Um, and I've just, I've, I've never sort of like been that into it but then i found out this week that the theatrical cut is not the preferred cut and then i watched some interviews with robert de niro talking about that how he'd not seen the new cut yet and martin scorsese restored it so he took all of like this footage that he found and uh sergio leone's notes or whatever and then they put it together i think they they made it chronological they changed uh, they, they uh, originally for the for the original release they kind of like uh, cut out some flashbacks they made it chronological and they took out the context for some other bits so it plays very sort of like um quite traditionally linear uh and then when they did the special cut, they added in a load, like 40 minutes more footage, and then they re-edited it, and they cleaned it all up. And I think that was the way that it was meant to be seen. Um, I think that's the version I watched. It's also the version I remember seeing on TV, which was shown over two nights, I think, because it's basically four hours. Well, that's what they used to do, isn't it? They used to th- they used to put in like loads of extra footage into. I think The Godfather and Superman were two films that they used to. Have you ever heard that fact about when The Godfather first aired on TV? No, I don't think so. When The Godfather first aired on TV, there was a national uh, water shortage when it finished because everyone caught up and went for a piss. <laughs> Because the film was so long, yeah, everyone needed a piss. It, they went on. So everyone, even though there are trailers, adverts in between, everyone watched The Godfather. And at the end of The Godfather, the, I think it was New York, the the water level went down because everyone <laughs> went for a piss and flushed the chain. Right. Um, okay, so once upon a time in um, America, hmm. Robert De Niro, 
James uh, James uh, Woods. It's about Jewish. It's about Jewish. You're going to have to. You watched it, so it's about Jewish Jewish gangsters. Yeah, during the Prohibition era, and but it's that's sort of the main thing of it. But it's also got this. uh, What's kind of interesting to watch now is you've also got the much older revisiting that time and coming back to Brooklyn at the time. And um, but now we know what they look like. Yeah, so it's it's that weird thing of. They are that age now or older, but they were playing older in the film. So it's got them as kids. It's basically the version you see is Robert De Niro comes back to Brooklyn to revisit his youth. And it's set over three or four different time periods, all of which you get in vaguely chronological order. But you also get this subplot of him in the present, which is, I think, meant to be late 60s, coming back to Brooklyn. Where did you... um... A, do you think there's any mileage in the fact of like maybe someone like Martin Scorsese taking James Woods and Robert De Niro now and refilming those bits and putting them in? I'd be kind yeah. of interested because that's what that's kind of what it feels like. You kind of think of it like while you're watching it, your mind is now saying, "Oh right, yeah, there's Robert De Niro from now," but it's not. Of course, you're looking at Robert De Niro from 35 years ago and going, "Oh yeah, of course, this isn't." He's actually the same age he is as a young man in this. He's not at all the older one. But I don't think there'd be much mileage in it. I think your brain already does that trick. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so where do, you, where do you see this version? Is this the... It's on Amazon Prime. It's on Amazon Prime. And I don't know... It's the version. Do you think it's the version? I think it's it, like when they when they added the scenes to um, Once Upon a Time. No, the Bad and the Ugly. Have you ever seen the long extended version of that? I thought I had. How long is that? Maybe I've just seen one that's. I think it's. I think it's like four hours. I think the original is a, it's three hours, and this one's like four and a, three and a half, three and three quarters. Oh, I don't know. They if put I in. They put in, or maybe it's three twenty. They put in a bunch of scenes, and it gives it a little bit more context because they didn't film sound at the time. They uh, got, um, it was before Eli Wallach died. So they got um, Eli Wallach, Clint Eastwood, and a Lee Van Cleef impersonator to come in. Yes, yes, I think. And do their, do their voices. So it's great because they've got, the, they've got two of the original three to come back and do it. But it's weird because they're old men. So you'll have a scene where you've got Eli Wallach talking like he did in the 60s, and then he's come back as this very, very old man who's doing this voice. And he sounds like this, but he looks young, but he sounds like this. And you've got Clint Eastwood with his deep voice, and then you've got this guy come along doing a Lee Van Cleef impression <laughs> who sounds like Lee Van Cleef. It's great. I mean, it's just, uh, ah, do you, do, you see, do you see, Nathaniel? This is what... This is what I like. It's not like, oh, I liked the new Transformers film. It filled up two hours. And now what? what's next? It's just, I love, I love how these things are handmade. They're like, you know, you can see the joints. And when they've added the film in, because of the way they made it, it affects the restoration process. The way they made it was they didn't film any sound. 
And then years later, when they put the bits in, they had to work. There was like a problem to solve. And it's beautiful that this thing exists. And it's, it's great. It's like Martin Scorsese loves film so much that he went back and he kind of did a favour to Sergio Leone. Oh, I think that's great. I think, it, you know, more power to him. Good for him. I th- and I think so you should. So you should do that to make it the proper version. That's the right thing to do. I guess I love, the problem I love, is I just didn't I love, love films. It. I love <laughs> films, Nathaniel, but then you didn't love it. And that's kind of like why I've avoided it. I feel like it's the last... I will not ever got all the way through Scarface either. But I feel like it's the last classic that I'm kind of like putting off. I'm fr- frozen. Am I still frozen, Nathaniel? You are, but I can hear you. Or a little bit. You're a little bit. Why on earth am I frozen? Doesn't matter. Anyway, we're going to do some... Uh, f- do you know what? I love talking about films with you, Nathaniel. Um, I think sometimes you're the only person in the world that gets me. So thank you. I'm slightly glitchy today. Oh, that's Natalie. See, it's like it's a tale of two cities. I'll tell you what I did watch fucking this week. Uh, Nighty Professor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, that's an incredible film. It, I mean, it has its, literally, it has its cake and eat it, eats it. Because I've grown up with weight problems and I find fat jokes in films incredibly hurtful. And um, this film has loads of fat jokes in it. Um, which technically I would find upsetting, but because of the amount of heart it's got and the message it's got, it's such a... Ah, oh, Eddie Murphy is so good in The Natty Professor. It's absolute, you know, just the difference between Bradley Love and uh, Sherman Clump. Huge. But then as the mum and the dad and the brother and the grandma and uh, Richard, uh, Richard Simmons, like, he's... Absolutely outstanding in that film. What an amazing movie. The Natty Professor. Hmm. Never seen The Clumps. Can I give that a go this week? <laughs> Fan now. Is there just two? It's just two. Should have been. And then, he did, nah, and then he did Dr. Doolittle and he kind of like got lazy again, but... Anyway, here we go. Hey guys, I was a fan of the stand-up for Kansas Nick was a part of. I was a bit sad it was over so soon. Did they say why they didn't want to make it into a series? Did they say why they didn't want to make it into a series? Why have you gone into it with a fucking... You only watched one of them. There are two a, of them. There's two episodes. It was a two-episode special. And then it finishes it quite plainly as a conclusion. There's a beginning and an end. What do you mean? Did they say, did they, what, while we were making it, they said, oh, do you know what, Nick? Thanks for coming in. We're so sad that it wasn't a whole thing. It was. It was two, two episodes. It was like two hours. Um, uh, what are Nick's thoughts on making What are Nick's thoughts on making the show I have? I have been having a Jason Pittman marathon recently. was unaware of how many of his films from the last ten years I was not aware of. I particularly enjoyed Bad Words. Uh, bad words. I saw that in. It feels like an uncle ripoff, one of many. Um, <laughs> it's about a guy teaching a little kid how to swear on the way to a spelling bee. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That, I remember. that could have been like a lost episode. Um, extract and disconnect. Have Never you seen any of these? They're on Prime. Thoughts on Bigman. Enjoying Nat's new podcast. All the best, friend. Um, yeah, congratulations with the new podcast. Nat, how are you doing in Malta? Uh, do you know what? I haven't seen our Maltese... Uh, Wind your neck in, mate. Wind your neck in. 
Well, I know we are currently 51 in Malta. (laughs) uh, I don't really listen to podcasts, um, but um, I'm going to... I've got a new phone, so I'll set my phone up and I'll listen to your podcast. Are you enjoying doing it? Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's nice to see people. Must be nice to talk. Virtually. Must be nice to to talk. (laughs) It is. is. Yeah, I imagine. So, um, um, I really loved making the Stoke cancelling, um, but I guess we'll talk about it in the second half, maybe. Probably, well. Um, uh, I like um, Bateman. I like Bateman. I really like Bateman in Arrested Development. Uh, nothing controversial there. Um, so I think he got a bit to like a bit like the go-to guy. I keep thinking he's in the Hangover movies. He's not in the Hangover movies, but you can imagine that he would be. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny that he has that thing that he was in Teen Wolf 2, and at the time he was in The Hogan Family, which was kind of a bit of a Family Ties sort of knockoff show, really, and Valerie. Right. And then he was Teen Wolf 2, where he was sort of like a, a version of a Michael J. Fox. And I think I've spent his whole career going, oh, yeah, he's like the other Michael J. Fox guy. And it feels like they might well have had a similar trajectory i guess every time i see him i i'm absolutely stunned that it's the guy from team of two mm. like I, I remember seeing team of two at the cinema and the fact that he went on to have like this huge successful career he'll always be <laughs> the guy from team of two to me so i can't really but he's great obviously you've got to say that he was great in uh, Starsky and Hutch when he first turned up in Starsky and Hutch. It was like, and Jason Bateman. It's kind of like, what from Teen Wolf 2? <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. He's landed on his feet um, like a wolf would. Thank you so much for listening. We will be joined by our guest, Baroness Saeed Varsi, tomorrow. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio. And we're back. We're back. We've just been listening to uh, Whitney Houston's One Moment in Time, if you're listening to it live. And if you're not listening to it live as a download, um, then uh, you haven't got any of the music, so it doesn't really matter what we what we play. Um, Probably talk about it, uh, though, in a minute. But anyway, we're back. We're, joined. we're back live. Uh, we're not live, we're pre-recorded uh, in my, uh, in, the, we're in the studio we're not in the studio, I'm in my uh, office and Nat is in his washroom and we're joined now by the legendary Baroness Saida Varsi uh, Hello Hi, hi Nick Hi Nat Hello, <laughs> we're, just, we're just talking before about, I didn't know how to address you Yeah um, Well I, I think Saida will do for today Okay Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, yeah. So um, this is uh, we know each other because we've worked with each other. Um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like this is this is this is my other partner, Nathaniel Metcalf, and now you're meeting. Uh, Who's better, Nick? Who's better to work with, me or Nat? 
Um, well, Nat is a lot more... Um, uh, well, you both have your positives. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say? Awkward, awkward. <laughs> no, it's great. I love you both. Um, so, uh, good, right. Uh, so oh we've God. just been... <laughs> Just been, we've just been listening to why? Why did you pick? We don't normally do this, but why did you pick uh, Whitney Houston's "One Moment in Time" as your favourite song of all time? Uh, I, I think two reasons. One, because it's just this great, big, thumping kind of Whitney Houston song, isn't it? Uh, but secondly, I think when I first heard it, it was at a really interesting time in my life, and it meant something to me at the time. And I think every time I now listen to it, it brings back that moment, and it was that moment of. For me, when I was thinking, you know, what do I do next? What, how do I step up from here? Um, so, yeah, it brings back memories for me. And I also think it's just one of those really big kind of female empowerment and the Baroness bitches song, really. Sure. I know that when I was growing, when I was growing up in London, uh, my mum was a really big Whitney Houston, uh, Whitney Houston fan, as we call her. And uh, I, I, used to, I used to be left in the car with, um, I can't remember which, what the album's called, but it was the one where she's wearing the white top and there's a blue background and it's got I Want to Dance with Somebody on it. It was that, Pet Shop Boys and uh, Erasure. And my mum would... Yeah, proper music. It was like it was like proper 80s, and it was like my mum would leave me in the car while she's picking up my sister, and I'd just listen to Whitney Houston, Pet Shop Boys in Asia. Um, uh, what did you used to listen to when you were growing up, Nathaniel? What did I used to listen to? The, f- the first things I kind of remember listening to were things like Shaking Stevens, where... Uh... Yeah, same. Very similar. Very similar. Very, the, the album was just called Whitney, Nick. Yes, yes, I saw that. Um, uh, when you yeah, said just, that it was one moment in time and you were going from one thing to another, what, what things are we talking about? What moment in time was it for you, Saida? I think the kind of, um, for me, I mean, I don't associate it with the late 80s. I think I really associate it with the, with the early 90s. Um, and the 90s and I think there were two probably big moments one um, a sense that you could be anybody that you wanted to be so we were of that generation that moved really from being really at the bottom of the pile to thinking they could do more than that so I think there was that moment from the 80s 90s through university through becoming a a lawyer and then I think later on in life I, I, I associate it a lot with the kind of moment post the disintegration of my first marriage just to say actually there's something beyond this and you know I've got to be able to kind of have the space to breathe and think that I can be somebody else other than this person who I'm expected to be so I think it meant I think it meant a lot to me, and, and every time I listen to it now, it still takes me right back to those moments. Hmm. And you, so you're a life peer of the House of Lords. How does how does one how do I become a member of the House of Lords? How does that happen? Um, does... So okay, two ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you can either well three ways actually. Either your dad has to be a hereditary peer. And when he passes on, he'll pass his title on to you and you will take on the, you know, the, you know, the dukedom or the earldom or whatever it may happen to be. Um, And you could be elected. I don't know if that's going to happen. Secondly, you can be appointed by (laughs) um, a panel. 
So every year they, there's an independent panel that appoints a number of people to the House of Lords and they normally sit as crossbenchers. So they're independent of party politics and they're there and they bring some expertise to the House. Um, and I think Martha Lane Fox, for example, was somebody who was appointed like that. And then uh, you, uh, and then, uh, and then you can be appointed through the political process. So the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, and the Conservative Party will appoint people who they think are experts to come and sit in the House um, to scrutinise legislation. So yeah, politics, crossbench, or posh dad. Okay, so you were brought in as an expert. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, which is a bit of a joke, really, because I was only 36. So I don't know what expert opinion I was giving. I was a really odd appointment to the House of Lords because the average age in the House of Lords is 69. Sure. Uh, when I joined, I was 36. And although I'd had a great first career as a lawyer um, and I'd been involved in politics and lots of policy areas, um, I think the reason, well, I know the reason why I was appointed was because we were about to go, we thought we were about to go into a general election. I don't know if you remember when Blair stood down, Brown took over, mm -hmm. and then we thought mm -hmm. Brown was going to call an election and then he bottled it. And I think at that point, we actually thought Brown was going to call an election, Gordon Brown. And so David Cameron was putting together his team that would take him into the next election and his shadow cabinet team. And he asked me to join the shadow cabinet. And because I wasn't a member of the Commons, the only way I could take on, take up a shadow cabinet seat was to join the Lords because I needed to be a parliamentarian. So for me, I think joining the House of Lords was a byproduct of doing the job in shadow cabinet. Right. So you're then brought into House of Lords as you're an expert and you're and you've got that position now until you die, presumably. I don't want to bring bring us down, but uh, you, you <laughs> yeah. can you can presumably have it for the rest of sentence. your life. It's a life yeah. sentence. It is a life sentence, and and you know it's it's. I mean, to be fair, the first so as soon as I came in, I didn't come in as a backbencher. I came in as a as a uh, as a shadow minister. So I was on the front bench, and I I was taking through legislation, um, and the Equalities Act was one of the first pieces of legislation that I worked on. And to some extent, I probably was an expert when it came to that piece of legislation because of the work that I'd done. But I think also because I was, a lot of lawyers can turn their hand to politics quite easily because you go from kind of arguing the law and implementing the law to making the law. So you get legislation, you get how legislation is made, you get how legislation is supposed to be implemented. Um, so it wasn't a big job, a, a big jump for me. It was kind of standing before a judge and making the case to standing at the dispatch box and making the case. Does that help with your um, presentation skills when you have to stand up in front of a big group of people and yeah. say I think when you've had the judge shout at you enough times and say, what's the point you're making, Miss Farsi? You know, as I used to get often, or can you get to the point? I think when you've had your butt whipped a few times in court um, and you've had colleagues kind of intervene on you in the House of Lords, you have to develop the skill to be able to say what you mean and say it quickly and say it clearly and coherently and get on with it. Mm. So I think when we were doing the, the stand-up to cancer, Nick, the, you know, the one thing that I was obsessive about was five minutes. If we've been told to do a five-minute sketch, it's got to be five minutes. And I think mm. that ability to be able to condense stuff and find the words to say things quickly and sharply is something that, you know, lawyers and politicians, I think, develop. Well, that is very um, relatable to stand-up comedy. Me and Nick from stand-up as you know you know for nick you probably don't know that i'm i do it as well or maybe you do i do uh, google yeah oh hello oh no 
Um, <laughs> oh, she's but, really pre- she's really well prepared. Um, yes, this is this again comes from being from a background in law, but I've no no previous <laughs> convictions. Um, yeah. Um, but but again, if I you if you check. oh yeah, <laughs> how did that come up? Well, I've got I my jab tomorrow. Check. I've got my jab <laughs> tomorrow, which suggests I have underlying health conditions. But I'm interested to know what they are. <laughs> uh, I'm pleased and also. Um, I'm perturbed. I'm perturbed. Um, but but in stand up, especially when you start out stand up, people would generally try and get five minutes as soon as possible. And then there's often competitions and things that are related to you doing five minutes of material, which is exactly what you did. So you've kind of your start in stand up is probably very similar to the way anyone would start doing stand up. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also, I think oh. there had to be a beginning. Uh, uh, you know, when uh, when you're presenting a court, you know, a case in court, whether you're prosecuting or defending, you have to lay out a story because you know you can argue what the often we're not arguing about the law unless you're in the very very senior courts. You know, you're arguing about facts and you're you're basically making a case. And even if your clients kind of pleaded guilty, you're mitigating and you're kind of making the case for why they should get there. You know, they shouldn't have such a heavy sentence. So I think the sense of having a beginning and a middle and an end and making sure that the beginning and the end have some sort of a link so that, you know, you don't kind of feel like you're drifting, um, I think was really good training for doing some of the stand-up. And so, you know, there had to be a story and the different stories had to link back to some overarching theme. We're sort of um, we're sort of jumping ahead because we haven't sort of put any groundwork into what we're talking about here um, but me and Saida met um, on me and Baroness Saida Varsi met on a TV show that we made last November was it November yeah. in 2020 so yeah. I mean um, so the, the way the way it came about was I think I was asked in January before the pandemic hit whether I wanted to do this thing for stand up to cancer and I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And then the pandemic happened and then it got delayed and then we ended up doing it in November. And there was a list of, from my point of view, Saida, there was a list of, uh, so it was on Channel 4, it was part of Stand Up to Cancer and it was a show that was called Stand Up and Deliver and it was where five comedians would take on five celebrities and they would teach them how to do five minutes of, um, uh, well, they teach them how to be a, a professional stand-up comedian uh, in about two weeks we had, uh, but it wasn't really yeah. two weeks. It was kind of less, much less than that. And um, uh, and then at the end of it, there'd be a show. And it was, it was just on TV, wasn't it, a couple of weeks ago? Um, um, so, so from last November, so we'll just do, we've, we've, dove, we've dove in very strong here, Nathaniel. So let's just step back a bit. What have you been up to since November, Saida? Um, so it's been fascinating because I've had all sorts of people kind of contact me because I think on that programme, well, we made the programme in October, I think it was October, November, and then it didn't go out until, was it February, a couple of weeks yeah. ago? Mm. And you I think won, by the way. Saida, so I, I trained, I, I, I mentored Saida and she ended up winning the, the competition. Um, yeah, uh, it's because he mentored me that I ended up winning. Let's just get that clear. That's what, think, he wanted, that's what he wanted you to say. He's, he's primed. It's true. Well, it's I'm absolutely actually, true. 
No, I think that well, probably is true, to be fair. I was actually very conflicted. I think when you look at it, everybody had very different styles. I think all the celebrities had very different styles and all the comedians had very different styles. And um, uh, and I don't know. I think I think you would have done... I think Saida would have done well with anybody. And, I, you know, I don't know whether she would have won, but I know that she would have done well with it. Because out of everyone, she was the only... Uh, contestant, can we call them contestants? She was the only yeah. participant who kind of like, um, other than Richard Coles, uh, who kind of is known for being a humorist in in the first place. Uh, Said was the only person that sort of like came on and was kind of like had sort of like. Um, the stage presence and kind of like some material, even though it was the stage presence of a Tory politician and not a stand-up comedian, <laughs> I think that anyone could which two very different her. things, two incredibly different, very, very different. <laughs> well, the, well, we were we were talking to each other, weren't we, Saida? And we were saying it's a shame how much they had to cut down in order to make the yeah. TV. I think they could have done, they could have done an hour on. Each each individual and um, and there have still been leftover yeah. material. Yeah. Um, but what I do really... say, Nick, is I think I don't think that I could have been paired with anybody and got the result that I got because I think what happened was I think because we were so different and because you're kind of and I say this in the nicest possible way I think because you're so out there and you're so kind of loud and you're so kind of you know kind of you're such a huge performer in your performance I needed somebody to be that big and that different to make me stop being so uptight and I think if I don't think any of the others would have done to me what I mean listen are you to dress up and you said to me go away can you dress up and I got these kind of weird outfits on and I walked out and you were running <laughs> around with your underpants on over your clothes actually and I'm like oh I'm just gonna ignore he's got that I'm just gonna ignore that I'm just I, I mean I literally had to do that I was doing that typical English thing of stiff up a lip nothing's happening the boats are burning but we'll just have a cup of tea you know and I tried so hard to keep that kind of reserve reserve reserved and I'm not sure anybody else would have would have pushed as hard as you did to break that exterior to finally get me to flip which is what I did and it's only after I'd flipped that I then I think performed the best so I think I would have had the material but I'm not sure I would have performed it in the way that because I, I tried so hard uh, as politicians do to to be nice and to please but you taught me that actually you can do stand-up comedy and make people laugh and like you by actually not even trying to please them and just being a moody moo up there which yeah. I think worked for the sketch. Well, I think I don't, I don't think you really, I think you came across as incredibly um, likable, um, and uh, and if that's something that you didn't you know deliberately do, I thought it was just a really good performance. What I would just to, just to say, I think that out of me and all of the other comedians, I think I am the least like my stage persona in real life. I think. When you look, so the other people were Jason Manford, uh, Ju uh, Judy Love, um, uh, Zoe Lyons, and David Baddiel. And I think that they are sort of basically extensions of themselves. When they're, they're, they're very similar off stage as they are on stage. Mm. Whereas I'm, I'm doing a performance. So in terms of getting you to do a performance, I know what it takes to be. One thing off stage, and then something else. I have to, 
if it was just me going up on stage, I'm very sort of like shy and quiet and, you know, just take away the size that you're a baroness. The fact that I had to, you know, after eight months of lockdown, leave my house and meet meet a new human being in the first place that was stressful enough to me uh so so i think that in order in order to get you to maybe um a place where you were putting on a performance rather than being an extension of yourself then maybe i was the right person but um but yeah i, I don't know i just thought that i thought you, i thought obviously i thought you did a, a, a really good job um, what was what was it about? I mean, well, another one of the other things, if I can talk about something that was that you said on camera that got edited, was that um, you're going to turn fifty this year, and it was like yeah. what on your it was on your things to do list. One of the things that you wanted to do before you turned fifty was to go out and do stand up. So my approach to the whole thing was rather than you know and i think that i wanted to get the fact that i'm i was brought up very left-wing and very liberal um and so when i was paired with you it was kind of like oh no this is an absolute this is a anyone but anyone but the tory baroness but in actual fact when we put that aside it was just kind of like when i did my first gig i was 25 just about to turn 26 and i was like i want to do stand up before i'm 26 and you were, I want to try this before I'm 50. So in actual fact, when you took politics aside, it was incredibly relatable. Um, and uh, so it was, I mean, it was, um, I think when you get to, you know, when you, you get to, when I, you know, I was coming up to 50, I'm 50 actually in a couple of weeks now. And it was the year I was, I was coming up to my 50th. And you start to think, you know, I'm, I want to try and push myself in ways that I haven't before. Um, and, you know, whether that's you jump out of a plane and do a skydive or you do something, you know, for charity or whatever it is that you do. And, and when this hit my inbox, you know, normally, if this had happened five years ago, I would have thought, oh, God, no, you know, I'm not going to do this. But actually, I think it was a combination of I'm nearly 50, I need to let loose, I need to lighten up and... I've been stuck at home with, you know, in this lockdown. Yes, I'll do this. Um, and I think after I'd agreed to do it, literally within weeks, they'd started putting in penciling in dates for filming. Because um, it was just a tentative conversation in the early days. And I, I just don't think that they gave me chance to get off. But that very first day, do you remember when we first met? I just remember feeling sick. I, I, they interviewed me and they said, how do you feel? And I said, I just feel sick. I don't know why I've agreed to do this. I mean, it was such high risk. It had the potential to go horribly wrong. Um, you know, we could have absolutely hated each other. We might not have worked well with each other. We could have just wound each other up. And I, I instinctively kind of had to get my head into the right place to say, you know, this has not got to be about people laughing at us. This has got to be about us making people laugh with us. Um, and then obviously, you know, competitive Seder kicked in. And I don't know if you remember when you came to Dewsbury, I said, you know, Nick, this is about winning, isn't it now? Let's just get in. And I, once I've got into that frame of mind <laughs> to say, right, we're going to smash this. And we've got to smash this. I think they felt, I felt like there was so much more at stake and we had to throw everything at it. Yeah. Whereas I came, I always think when you're concentrating on sort of the end goal, you sort of miss the process. So maybe we're a good partnership like that. Because I think that there not no names mentioned, but I think out of the other people that were participating, 
there were quite a few competitive people <laughs> that were doing it and i didn't i my goal was to get you to do to have five minutes that you wouldn't be embarrassed by you know i know what yeah. it's like to you go see, on I stage thought and we be were embarrassed. The, I, I thought i actually thought that we were the ones that were going to just make good television because we were so different and i was you know we and and actually i think i'd, I'd got into the mindset to say you know, we, we just, we're going to make this work. And, mm. um, and I think, and I genuinely think we got on big. I, I genuinely think, you know, if you just kind of put the original, oh my God, we're so different thing. Um, you know, I really enjoyed working with you. And it's actually, and this is probably, I hope this isn't going to ruin your reputation, but you know, he's a really kind, Nat, and Nick is a really kind, nurturing person when he's not running around on stage screaming at people. He's actually genuinely a very good teacher and genuinely cares about what, what is happening in terms of, you know, your kind of performance. So yeah, I think this bravado front of you know, so. I absolutely think Nick has been a very kind person. Um, but <laughs> I wouldn't I think, want but, to do but, this but, every week if I didn't. But I think one of the I think one of the confusing things. Um, not that I'm going to use this now as a platform to clear my name. <laughs> but I, think, <laughs> but I think I think one of the confusing things is um, that, uh, that that with almost any other type of performance, maybe I think maybe politics is an exception. But with almost any type of performance, when you stand up on stage, people acknowledge the fact that it's a performance. But with stand-up, you get mm. up on stage and people think that you are that person yeah. on stage. And I yeah. would say 90, maybe 95% of the time, that is almost, that's never true. You can be an extension like David Baddiel is just as chatty off the, but he's in performance mode. He's not just doing kind of like jokes all the time. And it's kind of like, um, I think that if you say, oh, well, in real life, he's quite nurturing and all of this other stuff, uh, it's kind of like, that's why. That's the only reason why the shouting and the uh, audience stuff works, is because I think people in the audience know that that is the joke. The mm. joke is the performance. Mm. The joke is the mm. way that you. It's the most unprofessional thing in the world to get up on stage and swear and shout at people that are paid to be there. So the yeah. joke is the joke is the fact that I am not that person on stage, but what if someone was like that? You know. Well, it, yeah. It, in TV terms as well, yours was the only one where you both had a story, whereas usually the contestants all had something to kind of get over, whereas you both had something to get over. So in TV terms, you probably had the most kind of narrative um, going on that would make a better piece of television. Wait. It's class. It was it's classic storytelling, though, isn't it? It's like nineteen eighties. Uh, the original art couple. Yeah, exactly. It's lethal, it's lethal Weapon. It's Turner and Hooch. It's, uh, it's, ta it's Tango and Cash. It's like oh, they, get, they, they meet at the beginning, they get partnered up with each other, they don't get along at first, which we did. And, uh, and by the end of it, they're, they're best friends, which I'm still, I'm still, I'm still not 100% sure if uh, you've accepted my friend request, but you're sure. Um, but, um, uh, I think now. But um, yeah, I know. And, like, you and, your other, and you and your other half are going to come for tea in the House of Lords. We're going to do posh tea when we've finished. Well, you said, COVID. Yes, you said one of the things that we ended up cutting, Nathaniel, was uh, was because of COVID. Was that um, uh, I was going to go into your house and you were going to cook for me, weren't you? And yeah. uh, you were going to come around my parents' house and beat my mum uh, yeah. to try and try and win her over. Um, I, so I still haven't. I still haven't tried your cooking. 
Um, but uh, how <laughs> you have your, to come round. How how has your life changed since? Uh, so let's stop talking about me. Um, so how has your how has your life changed since uh, since you, you did it? Um, in terms of kind of, I think, well, just to finish on talking about me, um, I couldn't when I worked in a bar. Um, when I started doing stand-up, I couldn't make eye contact with people. And I found th- that through doing stand-up, my self-confidence grew and I sort of learned how to be a better version of myself through um, through getting up on stage and performing. Um, so ha- have you noticed any changes in your life since you've kind of... Yes, yeah, definitely. Here? So I think I'm, I'm riskier. Um, uh, so there's been a lot of... I've always had some weird and wonderful offers to do interesting things on television off screen and get involved in projects. And I've always been quite risk averse, I think, on lots of things, because I've always seen myself as this public figure who has to make sure that, you know, I don't become the story. We talk about the issues, talk about almost kind of, you know, I don't know if I told you that when I wrote my when I wrote my book, um, a lot of my friends commented on the fact that I got married, divorced and remarried in the sum of one paragraph. And they were like, where, where was the story? You just, you know, you just didn't tell us the story. And I think I've always tried to talk about the issues rather than me. Um, whereas I think what I did in this was I let people see more of me and I talked about me and, you know, my story. And I think whether it's, you know, age and I, I was going down that route, I think this moment with Stand Up, and cancer, stand up to Cancer was, was a moment just to say, oh, you know what, F it, I can do this. And and I don't have to be so cautious and I don't have to be so reserved all the time and I can take more risks. So I'm definitely much more of a risk taker. I've had some fantastic conversations about future TV and what that would look like. And it's interesting how even in some of the serious stuff I'm doing, comedy seems to be the undercurrent in that. And and when I'm talking to people, people say, oh, God, you can be so funny. And I think it's almost like another bow you know, that, that another string that I've added to, you know, my kind of portfolio of I can also be funny. And I don't think people could see me as being funny before we'd done this. And I think that makes a difference. I can now officially say to my husband, who used to say, you just laugh at your own jokes and you're not really funny at all. Um, occasionally now I can say, well, I'm officially funny. I've got a trophy to show it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so you can't say I'm not. And I, on Mother's Day, my kids bought me a T-shirt which says, I'm the Baroness Pictures. Um, so that's become a bit of a catchphrase, which is a catchphrase now in the house. That's become a kind of bit of a, a mantra. Um, I, th- I think I'm just generally a little bit more, I don't care. And I think you, through that process of learning that stand-up routine, I think the one thing that you did teach me, actually, Nick, was just to get up and say, I don't care. You know, I really need to. I think one of the things that you kept saying over and over again, I don't even remember this, is, oh, for God's sake, you know, you just be yourself. Because when yourself, when you're yourself, you're actually quite funny and likable. And and I think it took somebody else outside of my world to say that, to chip away at those those layers. So, yeah, I think life, life has definitely changed uh, for me. I think the kind of, you know, I never thought I'd end up doing television and I'm, I'm now doing regular television, which is something that I never anticipated. Um, I am much more kind of front footed in lots of things. And I wear a T-shirt, which says I'm the Baroness Pictures. I, I agree that I think you were definitely the best one on the night. And I think you were, you were more accomplished then I would say, if you went to an open mic comedy night and you saw people that were doing starting out comedy, 
they would be doing it at a much lower level than you were doing it on TV. So, so you, you're automatically much better, I think. And I think that is partly, I think, or, or maybe majorly because of Nick. And I think you were doing a different kind of performance style and probably a bit more richer than a lot of people would when they started. Because you're doing it kind of... Part of the thing that Nick was bringing out of you was getting you to rant which also feels like quite an advanced thing to do. Like it's not something I do. And I think the stand-up I do is quite written and everyone mm. was doing something from a very written. Uh, it's basically you write something and then people memorize it and say it, but the performance element of it almost comes later. It certainly did for me, but mm. you had kind of performance skills as well, which I guess comes from being a lawyer and mm. perhaps um, I, I, I've sat in, um jury service and one of the things you get from um watching a trial is that the whole thing just appears to be you're just watching a piece of theater everyone's yeah. performing and also everyone kind of knows the outcome which is the yeah. thing that sort of blew my, it's like this is all you're just watching something that's already been written it doesn't mm. feel like you're watching something that's the ending could change it feels like everyone here is doing this performance where all the people running it seem to actually know what the outcome will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think that Nick did have a, a big hand to play in that because I don't know, we spent half a day where all I was doing was coming out and saying, hello, my name is, and he was like, I forgot. Yeah, and he was just sending me back over and over again and saying, what does that sound like? What the hell is that? You know, and, and it, was, it was almost as if, st- Actually, weirdly, it's when Nick got me to the point where I didn't look like I was performing, that mm. I was performing at my best, because once he'd stripped that back, and, and of course it was a performance, but I think when we hit that moment when we could make the performance look as natural as possible, it then felt, you make, I think other people in the audience felt comfortable because they didn't feel like... And, he was, and I think that's what had, it is. And it, and it was a stripping back of that, you know, where the performance is so performed that it actually becomes instinctively, and it, you're just coming out with things because you've just thought about it on the. In, and, and that's why I think when I, when somebody in the audience said something, I could come straight. It was a heckle, but I could come straight back at him mm. because I'd, by that time I'd really kind of eased into just being comfortable. That's well, that exactly was incredible. That, that was incredible because that heckle actually fed into one of your lines, and you managed yeah. to you know take something and make it spontaneous. And I think that that's the thing. My agent always tells me a story about when she first started doing stand, uh, working in comedy, and she went to see um, uh, Jack D. And uh, he was amazing. He was at the comedy store and she left and uh, she's like, oh, it's amazing. All of that stuff. He just came up with it and he said it. And, you know, he must have come up with it right in the moment. And then he just said it. And then she went to see him the next night and he said the exact same thing. And I think when it comes to Senate, there's some people that are sort of a little bit disappointed that it's uh, written and it's rehearsed. Mm. and it's that. But the skill about it my agent left and she was impressed she said that's amazing he made it look like he had made it up on the spot and part of the skill of stand-up is to sort of like hide the writing and to make it feel like it's a spontaneous thought or a spontaneous conversation that you're having um with the audience and i think you know because obviously it's been ingrained in you for decades Saida how to be uh, a, a, a public figure and to um, you know not like you say not let any of yourself away and so you're very protective you know from uh, coming from like um, 
the point of view of a lawyer and a politician, you know, it's sort of like we had to take, we had to break that down and then mm. just see who was underneath all of that. One of the things mm. that I would say was absolutely, okay, so, um, so part of, part of making this show, Nathaniel, was that um, a little bit of it, uh, so it, it did sort of like several things. There was a, there was a bit of a stand-up show. So there was like an entertainment part of it, right? Where at the end of it, there'd be some jokes. And then there was like the human interest part of it, where you see these people on screen struggling through it. Yeah? And then there's the charity element of it, where we're all doing something very good and we're raising awareness uh, for stand-up to uh, cancer. And then there's also the part of it where we are filling up some some tv a tv slot here right we're making we're making tv right so there was always like this this contradiction within you where it's sort of, sort of like right well you're going to take Saida to a costume um uh to a theater department costume department uh and you're going to dress her up in all these clothes uh so that you can kind of like get her get her used to being on stage and there's part of me that's going you just want us to do that because it's telly mm. there's no way that we would actually dress up in clothes in order to prepare for a gig and i was my argument with them was that i can see the benefit of taking sides to meet my mum and my mum showing all the costumes that she'd made over the years and it's kind of like these are all the costumes we made but you've taken that one element of costume and you're trying to make some tv out of it by making say to dress up in all these you know ridiculous outfits and then you know and it, visually it's better than two people sat around a table writing yeah so i was sort of like very resistant to doing it i thought it was a waste of a day because we only had like three days together really yeah we weren't allowed, yeah. We weren't allowed to talk in between no it's like every, every time we spoke <laughs> Every time we spoke and they weren't filming, they'd say, "Stop talking! We want to film it." <laughs> we want to get that on camera. Yeah, you can, and then it won't sound right when you're on camera. They just want so to just kind of get everything out naturally. So this costume day was just sort of like this is a complete waste of time because you know what are we going to get out of it? And then what happened was we we went into this little costume, which was weird because it's the Abbey Theatre, which is where, like coincidentally, where I used to go for like drama club on Saturdays. I wasn't a football kid; I was a drama kid, right? No. And uh, and, um, <laughs> and so they took us to this costume department where where I kind of like grew up. And um, and you picked out a bunch of costumes. There was like um, a couple of gowns. There was like a Guantanamo Bay esque uh, prison outfit. Uh, it was brilliant, wasn't from... it? The orange, the orange jumpsuit. <laughs> there was the, you had like a cloak with a hood, right? And I it was, was a blue. It was like a blue Afghan burqa. It was, it was sort of yeah. I can't remember whether it was velvet. Also, or they never really silk. explained that on the TV. <laughs> No, I mean, it's kind of like, it was, it was all really cut down. And uh, there were like moments of days that were there, but like the whole of the afternoon where I met your friends and we went out for yeah. like a late lunch. That was all gone. It was like, we, we only spent Parliament. three days. Do you remember Parliament? Parliament? They put all of that out. The, 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 the practice gig with your, with your, with some I, of the regulars. I can understand. I can sort of understand that because I think that everyone did sort of like a little practice gig and it's kind of like they wanted to make it feel like we were all building up to one gig. But that was such an interesting gig. Um, but, but so what I thought was a waste of time was getting you dressed up. But in actual fact, that for me was one of the most incredible moments because when you came out, 
because you, you, you when the first day I met you, you'd come in kind of like wearing kind of like your office outfit, so you look very sort of like professional. Um, and then and you hold yourself a certain way. And when we did the costume day, when you came out wearing the orange jumpsuit, your whole manner about you changed, right? You came out and you were all sort of like slouching and it's kind of like you were kicking your feet as you walked. And then when you wore the ball gown, you held yourself in a completely different manner. And when you wore the cloak, you were completely different again. And for what I thought was a waste of time, in actual <laughs> fact... It was just this it, visually. It was this thing which I didn't really think came across in the TV show. I found it. I found it mind blowing that your entire personality completely changed depending on what you were wearing. Um, yeah, I thought. Yeah, I, yeah it's kind of. I was. Like, I, I was. I think it's probably a dangerous thing to say in case somebody's like the home office is listening. But I think I was born to wear an orange boiler suit. <laughs> <laughs> It was, it, 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 you looked, you looked really comfortable and, uh, but, it, it, but I learned something there. Political statement, I'm, wasn't it, Nick? It was a political statement. And interestingly, it was after that when you said, well, what really gets, you know, what's passionate? What makes you passionate? And it was, it was like jab, 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 jab. And that's when I lost it, I think. And in that losing it, and I was like, rant, 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 rant. And it was kind of, that was the moment when I suddenly became kind of a, a, a you know a kind of a you know it was the daft the stupidity of politics that and it was so it's very authentic but then how did we t that was the moment when I yeah I think it was the night before wasn't it the final gig and um, I went away and I, I, re I rewrote the whole material didn't I that was a scary moment yeah. that evening was scary when I rewrote literally 80% of my material mm. yeah but it was but rem remembering it was the night before I remember because I was in St Albans and uh, my parents live in St Albans and I was, you know, um, I think restrictions were sort of loosened up a little bit at the time. And I went to see my mum and dad and I just remember being, I was nervous because, mm. you know, I, 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 when I first started gigging, I wouldn't, I'd get nervous like a week okay. before the gig. Oh, no, I've got to introduce you to somebody. I'll introduce you to <laughs> Nick and Matt. The other half who doesn't think I'm funny. Oh but hello! Now I have to accept that I am. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard about you. Oh, Nick's doing. Oh, Nick was absolutely great in teaching you. I mean, the, we we are sort of like. Thank you very much. We are we are sort of like. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we are we are sort of like trying to build up the myth that um, I had nothing to do with it. But yeah, I think he's sort of right. Um, <laughs> But when I first started gigging, I wouldn't sleep for like, I'd get nervous like a week, a fortnight, you know, and then as you get a bit more experience, it's the night before you get nervous and then it's the day and then it's like the hour and then it's five minutes before you get on stage that you're nervous about it. But when the night before you did your gig, I was very nervous in St Albans. Um, yeah. They didn't really give us time to sit and write and think about material. We really had to be kind of left to go off and you know, kind of write this stuff. So the very first time we were practicing a lot of the new material was, you know, at the 11th hour. Mm. But yeah, it's the right thing to do. If you do a gig or you do some sort of practice and you realise that a lot of it doesn't work, it's correct that you rewrite 80% of it. You know, that's yeah. what you're supposed to do. I don't, yeah. I, don't think, I don't even think it was that it didn't work. I think because 
like we, said, we were making TV. We weren't preparing for mm. a gig. So any writing time that we really had would be kind of like we had a couple of phone calls in the evenings. And then Saida mm. would go off and she'd write stuff and she'd maybe try some stuff out. And I'd say, well, maybe that punchline and that punchline. But it was really, I felt like, my job to uh, help her with performance, but also get her to a point where it didn't really feel like it was her first gig, but maybe it was like her 30th gig where it's like somewhere along the line a little bit where don't say that. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things, one of the, one of the, one of the things about having your very first gig aired live on TV is the fact that we had the luxury this annual of going on stage and failing and going home and drawing a line through that bit of material and saying, well, that doesn't work. I need to, I need to twist that bit of material so that I'm the victim in that joke. And then mm -hmm. it becomes more, you know, so we had the benefit of like learning from our mistakes, which I think is 90% of what stand-up is, is going yeah. out, trying something, getting it wrong, and then trying it, trying it again. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was sort of my job to get you to a point where we're getting rid of that, you know, uh, law of averages and we're getting rid of kind of like the, the, um, the possibility of failure and we're kind of like getting to the point where it's just good stuff. And then you rewrote it all the night before and then you went out and you, <laughs> and you did it. But, but you know, um, the earlier material that we had was, I think I was playing it safe. Whereas after that rant, I just thought, I think there was a moment that hit me on that evening where I thought, oh my God, all the stuff that I've, I've always wanted to rant about and I dare not because it's unacceptable. I can now say under the guise of comedy and I can get away with it and I can actually be as out there as I want and that's why when somebody heckled me and I said I won't have that what did you think just because I'm a Muslim I'm good at I'm good with guns you know and I would have loved to have said that but could you say that in politics could you hell but suddenly you're there you're heckled on a stage and you can say the most outrageous stuff because it's comedy it was quite liberating actually I mean, so you have, you have literally, it wasn't just a joke. Part of the, if, and we have people that listen from other countries. So try and find it on YouTube illegally or whatever. It was, it, it's, it was like some of the best telly I've been involved in. I was really proud of being a part of it. Um, but, um, but you were genuinely on the ISIS kill list. Yeah. 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 For you. Can years. you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, um, it, it was, um, they published a list of seven names in the UK and then various names internationally. And it was during the time that, um, you know, it was becoming quite difficult for people, foreign fighters to travel to Syria. And so they put out a list of names that they asked people to target in their home countries. Um, and so, you know, we had long discussions with the Home Office. Lots of things changed about the way I, you know, kind of conducted my life um, and, and lots of things changed at home. And, um, you know, one of the things, you know, one of the things that we ended up having to do was to get a really well-trained, clever, angry dog. Um, so the kids were like, yes, yes, mum's on a kill list. We're getting it. We're finally getting a dog. <laughs> she wouldn't let us have a dog and now we've got a dog. Um, and then, the, you know, there's a whole kind of sketch about the dog and how the dog, because I was just, I'm, I'm not as affectionate to the dog as everybody else is. So they reckon when ISIS do turn up, dog's just going to say, okay, you know what, bugger taker, she's really nasty. I don't like her anyway. So he's not going to protect me. <laughs> he's not going to protect me anyway. But it's, um, yeah, it, it was, it, I mean, look, at the time it was scary. And I think it, 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 you know, my husband and my kids 
probably, you know, we joked about it publicly, but privately would worry, you know, because they had a sense of what that attack would look like. And you couldn't really protect yourself from it unless you literally decided never to go out anywhere ever again. So I just took the view that if this was going to happen, this was going to happen. And I was just going to carry on trying to live my life as normal as possible and, and joke about it. So in private, you know, kind of circles, I've always joked about it. Uh, and But that was the first, and I didn't talk about it for a long time, but that was the first time that I thought, actually, publicly, I could talk about this. And that was, and the phrase, you know, I'm the Baroness Pictures was actually aimed at ISIS, wasn't it? Am I bothered? Am I F? Actually, you know, I'm the Baroness Pictures, or, or, you know, up yours kind of thing. So I think it was, it was a moment of, I suppose, frustration and relief and also just being able to laugh about it and say, you didn't win because I'm here on this stage taking the mickey out of you for trying to scare me into not living my life the way I want to live it. But also there's that threat that's been put on you in order to sort of control you, right? So to yeah, have... it, it's a way of... Go on. Yeah, I said it's a way of kind of saying that you... Um, you know, it's a way of saying we, we're going to shut you down. It is a way of, you know, closing down your space and, you know, putting you on the back foot and making you feel like you can't say what you want. It's shutting down what you say. It's shutting down how you live. It's shutting down everything about you. And, and, and you know, from, I, I am. Somebody like me is a real issue for extremists, you know, for people like ISIS, because I am, you know, proudly Muslim. I am proudly British. I see no conflict in those. I see no conflict between being, uh, you know, a practicing Muslim and a feminist. I see no conflict in, in, you know, going out and campaigning on equal rights for everybody. You know, uh, you know, I have no uh, issues in going out and campaigning on LGBT rights, pro-LGBT rights, but saying I am a practicing Muslim. And I think that when you kind of find a way in which you constantly look for those things that do unite us, and you can find the best in everything rather than what constantly makes us different and the worst of everything, then you, you, you are the ultimate extremist, not extremist's nightmare because what you're saying is that these crazy black and white worlds that you're creating don't exist because here I am in the gray area. I am proving to you that I can be Muslim and I can be British and I can be a woman and I can be a feminist. And all of those collide beautifully in my life. So, you know, your story that you're telling doesn't ring true. So I, th I think, you know, in an odd kind of way, it, it was a way, you know, extremists rely upon things being very simple narratives. And they're not. And our journey, in a lot of ways, Nick, was a kind of exploration of the fact that, you know, that there is never black and white. There is always many, many shades of grey and how, what makes up different people's personalities and the different characteristics. I mean, sorry, have I just made it really serious now? No, no, there's, there's 50, 50, 50 shades of grey. Um, <laughs> right. Can you can we just like uh, can you just explain to me a little bit about um, about this bill that's gone through uh, that's restricting the ability to protest in England and Wales? I don't, yeah, well, it's I don't... not gone through yet. So it's not come to the house. It's the police bill, and it's it's not come to the House of Lords yet. Um, and this is obviously a, as um, I mean to be fair, this bill had been 
uh, this bill was coming down the track, not uh, because of what happened with Extinction Rebellion last year, well, just before COVID, um, and then some of the anti-vaxxers uh, anti stuff, and then, of course, Black Lives Matter. So it was a response to that, and that's why it's got all this stuff in around statues and the rest of it. And uh, and then obviously the tragic murder of Sarah Everard happened, and and it, and you know the way in which that um, that evening was policed has kind of raised you know has really put the practical manifestation of that bill into the limelight, which is why now people are saying, what does this mean, and how can it be that we are closing down the space for people to? To protest now. Look, there are two sides to this argument. We're not. We're not going to be entirely popular in saying this. You know, if you if you spent time in and around Westminster when the Extinction Rebellion protests were going on, not last year but the year before, before COVID. Oh, I mean, it was horrendous. It was like day after day after day after day, and it was it wasn't. You know, it was impacting in in ways. And if you looked at the you know, for, I, I did used to question for people who, you know, of course these people were committing to, committed to a better, cleaner world. They didn't half leave a lot of rubbish around whenever they were protesting, and they were, they were, you know, they were damaging public spaces in the name of trying to protect the world. And so I think there is an argument to say, well, what do those protests look like? How long should they go on for? But uh, and 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 we need to not be able to have somebody camping outside Westminster for somebody like me, who used to walk in and out of Westminster at that time. One of the things that used to go through my mind now going back to exactly the conversation we've had before is that there are so many people mulling around and we're not quite sure who everybody is and there are tents everywhere. This actually provides quite an unsafe environment for me to be walking in and out because it actually does provide a lot of space for the not great people to, to, to use this as cover, to, to, to actually harm individuals. So I think there has to be some policing of protests. But I think the question in this bill is, does it go too far? Does it actually completely stop protests? And we all know, you know, even those of us that think that the way to effect change is through parliament, we all know that protest is absolutely a way to effect change. And if we didn't protest about things and we didn't noisily protest about things and angrily protest about things, people wouldn't listen and you wouldn't be heard for those things to start to matter in mainstream politics and, and, uh, and parliament. Yeah, I think that's, I, I know what you're saying, but I think also in the example of Extinction Rebellion, a lot of it's also saying that change can be affected through media, right? So a lot of that is, so people have those conversations in the media and people feel that if they don't have that voice, that they want to do something that means it's going to get noticed. So if mm -hmm. you're saying things like, if there was sort of damage or something, a lot of that is so it is reported. So it's almost that it, it's that kind of, the squeakiest world, the squeakiest wheel is like loudest, right? So mm. I think in those terms, that's sort of two different things. Whereas I think, to an extent, I think people have every right to do that, though, don't they? Because they mm. want to be able to get that message in the media or have any way that you can get that message out if they're protesting. And I think they should have every right to do that. And I think that um, that part of the way is not necessarily through. Uh, politics it's through that information getting out into the media so i think that's a slightly mm. different thing that there's sort of two different ways of doing it and certainly you can affect change mm. through politics but you can also do it by by doing it they presumably they're trying to get it noticed or trying to make people notice that there is this 
you know, there's this mm. kind of climate crisis happening. And if that's mm. not going to get talked about in the media, it's a way of mm. doing it. Even if it's mm. sort of perceived as negative, it does also mm. mean that that message gets out to people that might not otherwise hear it. And I think it is Yeah, difficult. but I mean, I, listen, I, I'm a parliamentarian, uh, Nat, but despite that, when the Trump visit was happening to the UK, I went out on a street protest. I walked mm-hmm. out of Parliament, down, you know, Millbank, uh, down um, uh, Whitehall, and, and took part in a street protest against my own government on the issue of Trump, because I felt like that noisy kind of um, protest needed to happen. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to lend my voice to the chorus of voices saying this is wrong. Mm -hmm. But I do draw a distinction between now noisy, loud protests to make a point and day after day after day of encampment where you are creating, you know, risk and where you are, you know, I mean, I, I saw the rubbish in the streets outside Parliament and I thought to myself, for, like I said, for people who actually care about a cleaner, greener world, you're certainly creating enough rubbish around here and you're not making it very clean or very green. So I think that there has to be a point where protest has to be planned, protest has to be policed, protest has to be agreed. All of these things have to be done within a you know a democratic kind of civilised society. Um, but what we can't have is anarchy-level protests that just go on and on and on and on for days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks and actually start to, you know, to the point where, you know, it, it's it's starting to damage the very things that we're, we think we're trying to protect. So I think that, that I think there is a what I don't understand. And, and again, you know, I don't understand this kind of ob- we should be having a conversation about who we are, our, our colonial past, the fact that it's not all been good and the fact that we will be stronger when we have honest conversations about our colonial past, right? It isn't, we don't need to kick down statues to do that. But if after those conversations, society feels it's time to take certain statues down, or what my view has always been is leave the statue there, but leave a massive kind of plaque next to it saying, and by the way, this guy was a bit of a dick and he was a bit of a shit and he did all these crappy things as well. But you know what? We'll leave his statue here because it's always been there. So put up the statue you to remember him because that's what it is it's a moment of celebration but then put a plaque next to him telling everybody all the shit things he did i don't have an issue with that and that might be the compromise where people get to keep the statues and we get to have a bit of honesty right but what i don't think what i don't like about this bill is this culture war that sadly my own party have created what it's almost become to the point that where this police bill has become about statues and where you know you've got colleagues of mine standing at the dispatch box saying to the opposition well which statues would you take down or what the hell what that's typical culture war kind of space and that's got to be where we stop because our shared heritage has got great things amazing things but also crap things in it and we will be a stronger nation if we can if we can be proud of a britain that is realistic you know, with all its flaws, then try and live in some sort of weird parallel universe where everything we ever did was great. And it's it's false. I don't want to feel good about being, that's just as being on some sort of drug, you know. And if, if we want to kind of be on some sort of weird, patri- you know, I don't you know, some sort of kind of patriotic drug, which gives us an unrealistic view of who we actually were, I would much rather say, yeah, we did some great things. We did some crappy things. But... You know, at the end of the day, this is who we are as a nation. And let's look forward and, you know, be, acknowledge the mistakes we've made. 
Sorry, I'm on a rant now, aren't I again? I get no, into the political That's space. all right. We have run out of time, though, so we won't be able to ask you about <laughs> Home Alone 1 and 2 being your favourite films. Uh, but that's, that's, that's how it works. You've got we were told Home Alone 1 and 2, or was it the Home Alone series? Was it, it was also 3 and 4? It was all no, of we them. All right, OK. We were wondering about how you felt about Home Alone 5. What about Home Alone, The Holiday Heist? Do you like that one? No, I, no, I actually think Home Alone 1 and 2 were the better ones, right? I, I, I yeah. actually think they were the better ones. And, but I always think it's one of those okay. movies where it doesn't matter one of, where one of the more it controversial things you've said. One of the more controversial <laughs> things you've said uh, the last hour. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, sorry, 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 sorry to our listeners. We should have prepared you for that. Um, but, uh, right, okay. So we've got, we're going to have to wrap up. Um, we've got time to play the world-famous game, Better or Worse. So, unfortunately, Saida, I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel Metcalf, and he's going to say, okay, for, uh, okay. take it away. <laughs> okay. This game is Better or Worse, Saida, and you just have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion, to score points. Okay. Beginning Fine. with Julia Roberts. Is Julie Andrews better or worse than Julia Roberts? You've got to go really fast with this. Julie oh, Andrews worse. better or worse than Julia Roberts? Uh, worse. worse. I think probably yeah. better. I think probably better. Robert Pattinson, <laughs> better or worse than Julie Andrews? Worse. Oh, worse. Worse. Uh, Judy yeah. Dench, better or worse than Robert Pattinson? Better. Oh, better. Better. Chris Tucker, better or worse than Judy Dench? Worse. 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 Patrick Swayze, <laughs> better or worse than Chris Tucker? Better. 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 Patrick Stewart, better or worse than Patrick Swayze? Better. 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 Worse. James no, no, Stewart, better or worse than Patrick Stewart? Oh. Better. James Stewart. Is Can't you just say the Stewart. same? No. no. Isn't it, is it, is it like an eye test where they say red or, red or yeah, blue? Yeah, yeah. Better it's, or it's, worse. it's binary. There's a oh, definitely... They're about the same. Oh, they're, they're high cards. Like they're high cards, Saeed. Let's, let's get, let's this. This is like this. the culture war, Saeed. It's one or the other. Better. Go on, then. I'll give you that one. Yeah, better. <laughs> uh, Rod Stewart, better or worse than James Stewart? Worse. 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 Uh, Rod Hull, better or worse than Rod Stewart? Oh. <laughs> better? Worse? I worse. don't know. The same. <laughs> no. no, no, no. We're having this. Pick one. Pick a side, Saida. Worse. Worse. Yeah, you can have that. Emu, better or worse than Rod Hull? Better. Oh, better. <laughs> I'd say worse. Worse. You got a oh, nine. Got an eight. Eight. That's a good score. Well done, Sayida. Oh, you got an eight. You got an eight. Sorry, you got oh. an eight. It's been, uh, which means that you're, you're bang a, average. It's you're, a fix. I want a recount. Thanks for coming on. Um, Thank you for coming on. Right, my name is Nick Helm. <laughs> I've, been, I've been on fan club with uh, my mate uh, Nathaniel Metcalf. Say goodbye, Sayida. Goodbye. Welcome to the clubhouse. <laughs>